0: I am Laura McCowan and I'm Holly Whitaker, and
1: this is Home Podcast.
0: So <laughs>
1: this is
0: Home <laughs> Podcast. Oh. Got a morning. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how are you?
1: I'm good. Uh, we were just t- had to delay starting because uh, of the jackhammering that's going on outside my place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Alma has been saying every morning, "I wish we just lived in a normal house." Oh my
0: god! It's <laughs> not the first time that she said that. She says that right. Yeah, except, you know, we live,
1: we live on like a commercial or like a, you know, it's a main street and there's an ice cream shop right below our house. As many people have heard me talk about, <laughs> um, and so, you know, she, like last night, her friends came and we went to the ice cream shop and she lives in the best place ever. Yes. But now, you know, she wants to live in a normal place. In a normal so. place. I get it. I totally get it. Yeah.
0: How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm I am tired, um, but I'm good. Yeah. I'm about to do a nice kundalini set, and then get my apartment cleaned for the first time in like three weeks. It'll be nice.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, I have a friend staying with me for a couple of days, so. Um, yeah, it's
1: a gift of. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Here, everybody, you can be privy to what. I have been listening to since six forty-five.
0: <sighs> Wait, All right. what? Oh, the jackhammer. The jackhammer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about this. So we did a we did an interview with T J Woodward, and T J is somebody that I was put into contact with through a friend of mine um, who is uh, who's a therapist who's part of my school, Kim Kokoska, and um, we were put in touch because T J is a spiritual director at Foundations in San Francisco. And we started talking, and I um, you know, just got a little bit of his background. He's gay. He's been sober for 30 years. He is a, an ordained minister. He's written a book called Conscious Being. He's in the middle of writing another book called Conscious Recovery. And um, and so we started talking. He also runs a TV show. You can check out his website, tjwoodward.com. He's, he's got his hands in a lot of different things. But as we started talking, we started kind of digging into... Um, we started really digging into some of the nuances about, uh, recovery as a gay man and recovery in the LGBT community. And then we started talking about Orlando and, uh, and really quickly I asked him, this was like five days ago, six days ago. And very quickly I asked him if he would come on because we haven't addressed, we haven't addressed, um, LGBT, we haven't addressed gay, we haven't we haven't addressed what recovery is like um, when somebody is gay or, or lesbian or queer or bi or whatever. We haven't actually like mm-hmm. done it yeah. yep um, and what recovery is like and what, um, and, and what that means and, and what, you know, what, what specific issues come up in that. Um, and it's something I've been thinking about because I, I know a couple of people that are going through recovery, um, specifically gay man recently who has been talking to me about, um, you know, essentially recalibrating himself within that community and yep. so, um, so, yeah, so we asked him to come on, and then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> and then I couldn't say anything. And, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I <laughs> couldn't either. I mean, we both, I think we both really quickly realized we were really uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, which is kind of embarrassing, but it's just it's what not. it is. You know, yeah. I, I, it was the quietest that I, I've ever been in an interview, and, see, you know, you were too. We were both very um, careful. I don't know. It's very careful. Like I, you get, and it's not that I, you know, I have, I have tons of gay friends and, 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 you know, feel like it's a non-issue for me and it really always has been, but it, but I also don't know how to talk about it and I don't feel like I have the right to talk about it. And that's what came up. You know, it was, um, I was, uh, was, you know, cautious with how I was asking questions. And I think, For both of us, it was a really, um, really beautiful moment when at the end you said, so, hey, TJ, do you want to talk about anything and he's like uh I would like to talk about Orlando
0: <laughs> and we both had wanted to like we would both wanted to talk about it but but I didn't like for me I didn't want to talk about it because I didn't know what question to ask yeah I know and also I didn't want to like I, I felt like I was capitalizing somehow on something re- you know it just felt to me like it felt like it wasn't I didn't know how to ask the question without sounding um as uncomfortable as I was feeling that makes right exactly
1: sense. Totally. Yeah. And it's this way with, you know, when we, it's this way with a lot of things when it comes to race, um, sometimes politics, sometimes, you know, places where I don't feel like I have the right to speak because it's not my experience. Uh, and I think a lot of us do that. We shut down and, um, and we get quiet, which is the exact opposite of, uh, what needs to happen. So he was totally gracious and kind of helped, we had it we ended up having one of the best conversations that we've had on the show I think after that you know yeah. um,
0: we did was... we did because we mm-hmm. finally started asking the questions we wanted to ask and and I think we also kind of got over the space of being afraid to sound dumb um, yep or, or being af- like the thing that I always am the most concerned about is sounding insensitive right or, or oh, you know mm-hmm. and I think it it's it's just it comes from this, this, um, well, I'm not going to get into the psychology. Well, it's like white,
1: white street girl guilt. (laughs) It is. Yeah, it is. It's, it's white street girl guilt that, um, that keeps me quiet, but you know, I, it really, it was, it helps to have this. And, you know, like when we talked to Glenn and she, we, we brought that up too about how, you know, she realized she doesn't have any black friends and she doesn't know how to ask the question. So she just asked it in her community of how, you know, half a million people or whatever on Facebook. And she asked it in the way that she could, which was totally fumbly and it was fine. And, um, so I, I love it. I love this conversation and I'm so glad it went the way that it did. Um, yeah, and I'm glad we were quiet, and I'm glad we were not quiet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So.
0: Yeah, so I guess here it is. Here it is.
2: And that, so that's great.
0: Yes, yeah, and that is one of my questions. Um, yeah. Awesome. Okay, cool. So I'm going to turn my camera off, and I'm recording. Laura, <laughs> are you recording? Laura? Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm recording now. Okay, cool. All right, Ready? I'm ready. All right, hey TJ. Hi. How are you? Hey. <laughs> hey. Um how are you? You're in San Francisco?
2: I'm in San Francisco. Yes, it's a beautiful day here and I'm just so grateful to be here in this conversation.
0: Awesome. I'm not allowed to ask about the weather, but I'm actually really curious about <laughs> 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 but I'm really curious. Yep. I'm, I'm infamous for always asking about the weather first, but I am curious because it's like 100 degrees in LA right now. What is it up there? Is it hot?
2: It's interesting. You know, it, it's it's uh, it's actually very hot here. And as we know in San Francisco, that's somewhat of an anomaly. So it's people are all out in shorts and it's a rarity up here, as you know. So we're all really enjoying the the beautiful weather.
0: I actually hated the hot days in San Francisco. I felt like I cursed them. I moved there for like for for clouds and fog, and I go other places for it. I'm like the only person that hates it. But
2: I actually love the fog. I love the cool weather. I'm the perfect person to live in San Francisco. I could even live in Seattle. I, I love the cool mm-hmm. weather, so I'm with. <laughs>
0: All right, so we are having you on today to discuss LGBT issues in addiction, and Laura's going to kind of lead through um, and ask you a little bit about your story, so Laura, why don't you take that? Yeah,
1: so I, we just want to get a, a sense for how you got to be doing what you're doing and, and what it is you are doing.
2: Well, I, myself, uh, got sober 30 years ago. Actually, June 8th, I just celebrated 30 years sober. So early in wow. my life, I was in my addictive behavior from age 13 to 20, and ironically got sober, clean and sober, about 50 days before my 21st birthday. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Wow. And, and that really set me on a trajectory of my life, you know, looking at, addiction and how addiction manifests, and then, uh, you know, always had a deep interest in spiritual path and spiritual teaching, and began Mm -hmm. studying Eastern Eastern uh, masters and went to India in the 90s, and then again in around 2006, had this intense spiritual experience, and, and I have dedicated my life now to doing spiritual work, in particular the spiritual aspect of addiction. So I'm currently in private practice doing addiction and spiritual counseling. I also am the spiritual director of Foundation's Intensive Outpatient Treatment Program, and also the minister and spiritual director of Awakened Living here in San Francisco. So it's really my, my life is now dedicated to really getting down to the root causes of addiction. So not viewing it as the problem, but really looking at what's underneath that and what's the yep. spiritual solution, if you will, for that.
0: Awesome. No, oh, it's so, much more succinct than I think I could have ever put what I oh. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> so good. Clearly you've done this before. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, and you specifically serve the LGBT community, or is that just something you have a lot of, you know, opinion on background and because you're interested or what, where does that angle come in?
2: Well, I think it you? comes in because being a gay man myself and having that be such an important part of really my addiction and I know we're going to talk more about that you know how addiction manifested at a higher rate within the LGBT community. I also am so blessed to uh, as as I said I'm the spiritual director at Foundations and we about two and a half years ago started an LGBT track so I also run that track knowing that especially in the Bay Area there are so many people that are LGBT that that are in an addictive uh, pattern and you know really suffering from addiction and so it's a it's, it's one of my passions to help LGBT folks. My ministry and my practice certainly isn't geared only toward LGBT folks, but uh, we do get I do I do work with a lot of LGBT folks as well.
0: And when okay. you say track, what does that mean? Like recovery specific to that community?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Foundations is an intensive outpatient treatment program, and within that program, we have an LGBT focus. So, one day a week, our LGBT folks have the option to. Uh, come to our group that has a specific focus around that. Uh, there's a psychoeducational group and then also a process group. And what I have found is that with within with a, a lot of different specialty groups, if you will, there are specific special, uh, special cultural needs that, that get addressed in a, in a much deeper way when there's a space provided for that. So we come together and really process how to support each other and what the specific cultural issues are for LGBT folks and how we can address them and Help them live, a, you know, a, li- a lifetime, a lifelong recovery.
0: Awesome. Well, I think that gets into the first question, which has been a hunch of mine, and which is a question that I and something you've already that you've already discussed, which is: is there a higher incidence of of uh, addiction in the LGBT community?
2: Without a doubt there is. I've done a lot of research on this. When I started the LGBT track some years ago, I did a lot of research and the studies that I looked at showed twenty to forty percent higher addiction rates. Some of the, the studies I looked at were with gay men specifically. And you know, I, I'm I'm currently writing my second book, which is called Conscious Recovery, and the focus of the book is looking at addiction through the spiritual lens. And it's also looking at what the root causes of addictive behavior are. And in my work, I've come up with three root causes, and that is toxic shame, unresolved trauma, and spiritual disconnection. And in all of those three, it's more pronounced within the LGBT community. So in in the work that I've done, I see that as a driving force, if you will, in particular shame. Uh, when someone's told yeah. there's something wrong with them in such a deep way and they take that on, it can lead to addictions in all different ways.
1: So you can, can you say those three again? Cause I, I want to yes. like breeze past that.
2: Yeah. Uh, toxic shame, unresolved yep. trauma and spiritual disconnection.
1: Okay. Awesome. I can't read read your book. Um, okay. Keep going. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah so so if you look at the LGBT community specifically like if we look at toxic shame which uh, shame is a sense of being broken you know guilt as i am uh, guilt as i've done something wrong or done something bad you could say and guilt is a belief or an idea that there's something fundamentally wrong with me and for many gay people not everyone but many gay people they've been told that there's something fundamentally wrong with them for who they are and so there's a a, a very early oftentimes a very early uh, relationship with themselves in the world that is very shame based there's something wrong with me and from that of course addiction it's a breeding ground for addiction
0: and do you think that that's changing like do you see that as changing as we're starting to have more acceptance around this or do you not see I mean how do you see that shifting or has it shifted
2: I think it is shifting in beautiful ways I mean I grew up I was born in 1965 I grew up in Indiana in a small town and then in Indianapolis I actually never thought that I would see uh, the the advances, if you will, in consciousness around LGBT folks. You know, we have gay marriage, it's very accepted now uh, in many circles, and yet, you know, the events of Orlando can show us that it's not completely healed yet. You know, homophobia is still alive, there's still more work to do in growth and in consciousness, I think of, you know, m- my nephew is 12 years old and I look at his generation and what a blessing that people are being accepted, not just LGBT folks, but pe- folks from all different, you know, seeming differences because we recognize, you know, essentially we're all more alike than we are different. So it's a, you know, I think celebrating and honoring those differences while also knowing our inherent oneness is really important. I see it changing in really beautiful ways though. Yeah.
0: And then the other two, can you discuss how those um, are in particularly more uh, sensitive issues in uh, LGBT terms?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So unresolved trauma, trauma, of course, is a a tricky thing because there's, all different types of trauma and i think traditionally when we hear the word trauma we might think of someone going to war or being in a severe accident but there's all different types of trauma or traumatic uh, experiences and it's really uh, within the lgbt community i think it's very linked to the shame piece because again if if you grow up like i did in a culture that is teaching you that there's something wrong with you fundamentally Uh, I remember from a very, very early age looking around and thinking, wow, I'm not like all these other boys. Uh, That in itself is a traumatic experience because I felt out of place in life. So it was more like a complex trauma or traumatic experience over time, living in a culture that was very focused on competition and men being very manly and playing sports. And that wasn't who, you know, that wasn't me. And so like there was an experience of the world that was traumatic. Yeah. And then the third one is spiritual disconnection. And and that can mean a lot of different things to different people. Certainly, if you look at uh, religion, a lot of religions are still teaching that there's something fundamentally wrong with being gay. So I was blessed to not grow up in that type of religion, but many of the clients I work with and many of my friends did. And so that just adds another layer, right? And adds another layer, that spiritual disconnection. Mm. It's one thing that For people to be told there's something wrong with them, but for them to be told God or an idea of God doesn't accept you for this is really, really...
0: Yeah, when I was so my dad is gay. When I was 17 years old, I went to I started seeing therapists, and the first therapist that I ever went to, I sat down with her and I told her about what I was going through. I mean, it was like anorexic, and she said, "Well, like the only thing that I remember of that was that she asked me if I understood that what my dad was doing was wrong and that he was going to hell." That was my my first experience. But this is a therapist. This is in Fresno, California. But yeah, I mean, it is, and that that was a long time ago in terms of much progress we've made but it still is it's one thing i think that when we see things like gay marriage becoming legalized we start to think well this is going away but it's still so alive and so prevalent in a lot of religious organizations and and other you know geographies in the country and the world so yeah
2: yeah absolutely there's people of course alive today that when they were you know in their formative years this, it was still viewed as a mental illness, right? So, you know, people that are maybe 10, 15, 20 years older than I am that went through, you know, gay, gay people being pulled out of bars and arrested, you know, and having going and having shock treatment. So we're not that far from it. And I, I, you know, of course, I love to focus on the progress because I think it's important to acknowledge how far we've come. I look at, at people today and the acceptance and the love that I'm seeing in, in all communities as something that's happening in a very profound way and so much gratitude for that.
0: Go ahead. Uh, okay. No, I was just going to say, so while we're still kind of talking about this, about the prevalence, why, why there is a higher incidence of it in the LGBT community, one of the things that I was thinking about that I started to think about when I was listening to, do you know who Rob Bell is?
2: No, I don't.
0: Well, he's somebody that's been on our show, but he's a, he's a pre, he's what? Preacher?
2: What Pas- are we? pastor. Pastor. <laughs>
0: pastor. Um, and also, how would you describe him? What is he? um he's, he's a very, you know, non-traditional
1: uh, pastor, I guess I would say. Um, he's a, I look at him as sort of a spiritual leader. He's a writer. He's a, um... He has a podcast as well. He does a lot of talking about, to me, what spirituality means in a non, um, in today's world, in a relevant way that's, um, his, you know, his background is in is he does sermons still on Sundays, but he, um, so he has that training, but he, um, really brings it into a place where it works today, um, and makes it accessible to people,
0: um, yeah, no. So I was listening to his podcast last Sunday. It was called Orlando, and he was just talking about how um, how that is how the how the club scene is the, is the church. It is one of the places that that this community has had to come together in a safe space to be who they are. And so when I when we talk about the incidents of this, also the the thought that occurred to me was that one of the few places that that historically um, the community, gay community, has had to congregate has been around addictive substances, and so I'm just curious about what your thoughts are on that as being part of as also something that's that's contributing to to the prevalence of it, or the without, higher incidence.
2: Without a doubt. So if you imagine, you know, someone that does have a sense, there's this toxic shame, there's this unresolved trauma, there's this spiritual disconnection. They know they're gay. They're in the process of coming to terms with that, and the first place they meet other gay people is at a gay bar. Uh, Of course, there's going to be higher um, rates of of alcoholism and addiction of all sorts. You know, we've also got sex addiction, you know, uh, food addictions, all different types of things. You know, it all stems from this sense of brokenness. And yet then there's this Mm -hmm. breeding ground, if you will, that on one hand is this really wonderful thing because there's a safe haven for gay people to be able to congregate and then mixed in with that is all the addictions. And, you know, I I mean, in in, in my, through my lens, I I don't see addiction as the problem. I actually see addiction as a solution to a problem, right? A a, a solution to something that, that feels, you know, damaged or broken internally. And so of course, drugs and alcohol are going to be a natural place to find relief.
1: Right. Totally.
0: So the question I, I asked one of my uh, somebody that's that I know um, that's been through one of the programs that I run, who's gay, and uh, for a few questions. And one of the questions that, that came up from this person was, just wondering what other safe spaces there are out. Um, like the question is exactly what other safe spaces are out there for LGBT individuals besides the bars and clubs. So what is there in terms of finding that same niche and that same home and that same belonging that doesn't necessarily revolve around
2: alcohol? Well, I think that a couple of things that come to mind, one is depending on where this person lives, there's going to be a, a broad, you know, range of different opportunities. We're really blessed right now, you know, to have the technology that we do and people can connect on the internet. I know in San Francisco, there is just, if, if any kind of subgroup within the gay community, you can imagine, you know, uh, <laughs> gay basket weavers who love to hike. I mean, you know, it's like everyone <laughs> people to connect and, I think that's what's, what's really shifting. People are looking for something different. I know my partner had a great conversation yesterday with his, uh, Uber driver and his Uber driver had moved to San Francisco, um, young and gay and grew up knowing that he wanted family and when he moved to San Francisco he was like wow everyone's partying and where do you find where do you find the men that want to settle down and start a family and and so it was an interesting conversation of how we find that and i what i what i see is that as we continue to evolve there's all kinds of opportunities for people to connect that are outside of the bar. Of course, if someone's in recovery, there's all sorts of different recovery groups now that are happening, where they can meet other LGBT folks and connect in a in a, in a way that may uh, speak to them in a more authentic way.
0: Interesting. Do you think that the do you think uh, legalized marriage is also kind of decentralizing it from the club scene, or no?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think the other phenomenon that we're going to see in the next generation is people not needing to move to large urban areas to feel safe. Right. And that yeah. was something that traditionally happened. Of course, I lived in Dallas for many years. And if you were gay and you lived in the South, you pretty much moved to Dallas or Atlanta. I mean, that was kind of where everyone moved to, fi- to find safety. So within that, there were large thriving gay communities in both those cities predominantly centered around the club scene. And so I think we're going to see a dramatic shift in gay people living more in the suburbs, even in rural areas, staying in their small towns to be near their families. It's going to be a a really big shift in what we call gay life or or gay culture in the next 20 years.
0: Oh, that's amazing. I never even thought of that. So I, yeah,
1: it is amazing. It's a fascinating point. So the, do you see, and obviously you're in San Francisco, um, and there's the, the answer is probably going to vary depending on where you are, but do you also see a lot of recovery coming up in the gay community because there's, there's a high prevalence of addiction or do you feel like, um, like how is being in recovery seen, uh, well, in the LGBT community?
2: In San Francisco, of course, it's huge. It's large and thriving. I mean, one of the things we're seeing with gay men specifically in urban areas is crystal meth addiction just skyrocketing, you know, working in. Now? Now, absolutely. And so in, in like in the addiction treatment field where I work, most of our gay men come in addicted to crystal meth. And so there's a huge, like, CMA is a big movement here. Of course, you've got other 12-step programs. Refuge Recovery is really big here. And even though it's not LGBT-focused, you know, it's recovery uh, through the Buddhist lens. So it's very open and accepting. Yep. A lot of LGBT folks find refuge there, of course. So I, I think it's, it's you know, I see it as a, a huge, thriving um, community. We're actually, of course, having Pride next weekend, here or this coming weekend, here in San Francisco. And, and there's a huge area that's dedicated to people who are clean and sober. It's a safe space. There's a drag show, there's a dance, there's, there's a 12 step meeting. There's, there's an opportunity for people to come and connect and be around clean and sober people, whether they're in recovery or not. Uh, sobriety is yeah. something that's prevalent now in the community.
1: Okay. So yeah, I just want to like dig a little further on that one because, and I'm sorry if my question seems stupid. I don't know the right way to ask these questions. So I'm just asking, but they're perfect. (laughs) I think of like the way I think of the way being, getting sober. I'm, you know, I'm straight 38 year old woman. Um, you know, there, there are, there are certain, you know, being, getting sober was a very counterculture to all, to what I'd grown up in terms of my family, socially in the industry I was in advertising. It was very counterculture. And, you know, by and large, we live in a society that heavily, you know, pushes drinking as a, as this wonderful thing and drug, uh, drugs less so, but drinking. Okay. So, I'm wondering, and I have a lot of gay friends too, and a lot of male gay friends, and the I felt like drinking was such a big, like that was a primary thing we did together, even more so than my straight friends. And so I'm wondering, and I don't have any, I don't have any um, of those friends that are sober, and I'm just thinking of the extra sort of, I'm wondering, or maybe I'm just projecting this, if there's an extra difference or a difficulty in extracting yourself from that world when you, um, you know, go to get sober and like San Francisco, I can imagine being, you know, sort of on the up and up there's gonna, there's a large community. So there's probably going to be a large recovery community, but what about, you know, do you, do you feel that or am I, is there like a lag in, um, I guess I'd go back to, yeah, how is it seen, you know, is it, is it more difficult (laughs) to, even more difficult than being already so difficult to get sober, um, being in the LGBT community.
2: Yeah. I think you're speaking to it beautifully. Absolutely. Any of us who are getting sober, our, our, our culture really is in a lot of ways centered around drinking. If you look at a lot of you know, corporate culture. It's like, let's meet for happy hours. So that's very prevalent within the LGBT community. I think it's even more heightened as, as we're saying, uh, yes, we're in a, in perhaps a somewhat unique situation in San Francisco and probably any other major urban area where there's going to be a large recovery community, uh, with LGBT folks. But I will say this, a lot of the, of our clients that move, like our clients that move here from other areas that come to San Francisco, it's easy for them to get swept up in the scene here and and relapse and struggle with addiction. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting balance because they might in some ways have an easier time in their, their smaller uh, cities or towns or or suburban areas. And yet I absolutely agree that it, it would be more heightened for a lot of LGBT folks and just all the more reason to find community, whether it's specific to recovery or not, where there's people that aren't you know, actively pursuing an addiction, whether they're drinking or not, but you know, finding places to meet that are, that are spiritual or that there's some common interests. And we're very blessed, of course, in San Francisco, as you said, to have a thriving community. Um, and, yeah. and I know that that's it's also in other cities as well.
0: Can I, can we stay?
1: Oh no, sorry, Laura, go ahead. Just one more to follow this thread. Um, in so you've been, you know, sober for 30 years, which is amazing. You got sober when you were 20. Um, what sort of just having this long view that you do over three decades, what do you see in the recovery, you know, the trend in recovery, do you see it sort of progressing in the same way that you do around lgbt acceptance in the country or what you know what do you track what do you see there is it way slower than you you know then is it tracking the same what you know what is it like to get sober 30 years ago versus now
2: Well, I think without a doubt there are more resources now. I mean when I got sober 30 years ago, it was kind of like you either went to treatment or you went to AA. Those were kind of your choices. Now we're seeing all kinds of alternatives for people. You know, some people resonate with AA or 12-step programs. It works really well for them. Some don't. And there's so many opportunities now for people that are creating new types of communities. That are viewing addiction in a in a different way, you know. Like I mentioned, refuge recovery. I know, of course, there's hip sobriety that's amazing. There's <laughs> all kinds of really wonderful, different programs for people um, within the LGBT community. I know that there are, are, are groups that are that are forming that are offering some alternative to twelve step recovery and a more holistic approach. So I see it evolving in a really, really big way. I mean, you know, when I got sober, we didn't have uh, yoga, acupuncture. I mean, none of that was even view Or the as- internet. <laughs> or the internet. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> well said.
1: <laughs> I wasn't saying that to age you. I was just saying it's literally true. Like, there was no internet.
2: <laughs> there was no internet exactly
1: (laughs) okay No, that's yeah i was hoping you'd say something instead of you know because to me we're and i know to holly we're so dreadfully far behind um or where i wish we were but it's good to see that you know over the course of 30 years there's there's progress but anyway go ahead hall
0: no, I want to talk about the stigma aspect of this as well, just because when I started, when I started um, pulling together my thoughts on this, and and I like I don't re- I I don't carry the label. I don't call myself an addict. I don't la- I identify as an addict or an alcoholic. And I think that it's somewhat harmful to see oneself as their addiction or label oneself as their addiction. And so, and there's such a, there's such a stigma attached to people that go through recovery as if they're damaged or, you know, they're weaker or they have something to be ashamed about, or, you know, there's, there just is, there's a heaviness, there's a burden. People are very, very quiet about their struggles with addiction and for most part until they come through it, if they come through it. And so when I started going through this, one of the things I researched was just the, the, the around the AIDS crisis um, silence equals death was a huge thing it was a huge movement that came out that um, was incredibly important when we're talking about AIDS and, 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 and it being a stigmatized and an underground condition um, that people were terrified of, of, of talking about for what it meant for them Societally, and so I'm really curious because this is something that I think this is this is on some level one of the next movements to really move through, which is to stop calling addicts addicts and to stop breaking people down based upon you know what what they suffer with, um, and so. I'm just curious for your thoughts on that first of all like if you think that this is and not I don't I'm not trying to say it's an equivalent movement just because I think it's apples to oranges, but I'm just curious about what your thought is on the stigma that's attached to it and then also I'm curious about your thoughts about it within the LGBT community because it's a community that understands what stigma does. Um, I'm wondering like what Laura was saying being a 38 year old you know single woman, single straight woman that's you know, had to, uh, that's sober, um, you know, we, we know how hard that is in our lives you know, and how, how hard it is to overcome that, that in our own lives. I'm wondering if because that, the LGBT community is more sensitive to um, the toxicity of stigmatization and, and, um, and being afraid to speak our truths and be who we are, um, if, it is, if, if it's different in terms of that being sober in that community.
2: Well, I, I guess I have three things to say to say uh, in response to that, and that is thank you, thank you, and thank you. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm so grateful to hear other people in the conversation of the damage, the potential damage that it's done when we begin to label people as an addict or an alcoholic, and repeating that for, you know... Uh, d-
0: decades? W- <laughs>
2: decades. I, w- I was going to actually say that because in my... Daily, age-
0: decades
1: and daily, yeah.
2: It was important for me in the beginning to identify that as an issue that I wanted to resolve, but years of repeatedly calling myself that was something that I began to see as something that was damaging my spirit. Mm -hmm. And so I think that absolutely, and I love that you brought up silence equals death. I think it's really important that another thing that's happening as a shift is that we're moving away from secrecy around. Um, addiction and of course if you look at some traditional programs that want to have it be secret because of the time that they emerged and how important it was because of this stigmatization. We're not in that time now. We have people yeah. that are coming out that are talking about their their addiction addict, addiction, their recovery, and their path toward liberation, really, toward freedom, where they're not identifying for the rest of their life as something that seems to be concretizing the sense of a damaged self we're talking about toxic shame right and to me that's the the core of addiction and then in some ways we're adding more shame to that by by taking on a label now i have friends that say that's it's a source of empowerment for them to call themselves an alcoholic or an addict and so of course i honor that i just know for myself using spiritual principle and knowing the power of language, in particular, the power of the I am, what I attach my I am to, mm. I would much rather affirm I am whole and perfect, I am essentially whole and perfect, than to continue to to say that. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I just wanted to say thank you for that perspective, and I think that's shifting really quickly right now.
0: Well, I think it's also, it's shifting, but there's also this thing that we talked about a couple podcasts ago, where there is... There's like the cart and the horse, meaning, or the chicken and the egg, better, chicken and the egg, where there is still people, there's still a very real threat to people losing their jobs, to losing their relationships, to losing their societal stance when it comes to, or position, or whatever you want to call it, their reputation. People are very um, suspicious of people that are, um, have suffered with addiction and like they're going to relapse or they're, you know, like, um. Uh, there's that line. How do you know an addict is lying? while his lips are moving, and mm-hmm. like there's this is something that was repeated in a book that was written just a couple of years ago by one of the more progressive men in the addiction field. I mean, there still is this like very real, very real um, consequential stigma attached to it. Meaning, when we come out with it, we do run the very real risk in our lives of of, of being hurt by this, and so. I think that there's that, and then there's also the the only way to undo that is for more and more and more of us to speak up about it, and more and more of us to come out about it, and face the consequences of what it means, so that more and more people can enjoy, you know, so so that more and more people can enjoy um, a life where those threats don't exist. Does that does that make sense?
2: It makes perfect sense. And when, and when I'm hearing you talking, I'm also recognizing that. It's sort of like they both work well together. So if I'm not viewing myself as an addict or an alcoholic, then it it removes the stigma in itself. Because if if the addiction was us trying to to come up with some sort of strategy to work with something, that's very different than continuing to call ourselves something. And yeah, I mean, I've heard all those things that are repeated, like the the lips moving and the lying. As we move away from that and recognize, you know, because I work with plenty of people that are in in maybe in public life or in certain fields where they don't want to be identified as that um, mm-hmm. When they identify themselves as, I I am I am sober, I'm living this life that's, that's much more um, connected and more open-hearted, you know, when they're framing it in a positive way, they're not getting that stigma as much. So it's an interesting balance for when people want to talk about their addiction and, and when they want to reveal that. And for some, as you say, the stigma does continue in, in certain fields. I mean, I know, like, people in public life often have to keep that a secret, so mm-hmm. uh we are evolving. And I I think that there's more work to do.
0: Yeah. Very well said. Laura, do you want to go or? No, I mean that I'm just think
1: absorbing all of that. It's so interesting because, um, on one hand, you know, I think it's like a matter of how we choose to take on this, this label and the meaning of it. I mean, people are openly now saying I'm you know, I'm gay, I'm transgender, I'm all those things. And in a, in a prideful way, whereas before it was seen, you know, it was st- heavy it, and still, uh, you know, heavily stigmatized. I think it's the, you know, the, the meaning attached to the word addict, alcoholic, um, and it, you know, maybe, maybe the label is I'm in recovery and I'm sober,
0: um, I'm a teetotaler
1: <laughs> I'm a t- or, you know, Holly and I's favorite. I am a teetotaler that we know tattooed on our arms. Um, oh, nice. so I, yeah, I just think that the, the, I, I, really like this conversation, um, and just thinking about it. And, you know, I had a friend say to me, um, recently in the past year, he's a guy, straight guy. And he's like, it's almost like, it's like, I would rather come out as gay to my family who in his family would be very unaccepting. I'd rather come out gay than sober. And Mm. it was such a, and he was serious, you know, and he's struggles with both, he struggles with, with addiction, not, you know, he's not, he's not gay. And it's just like the two, these, I don't know. I, I guess I just want to make comment on that and leave it at that. It seems like, um, it's a very real thing, you know, and I, but this is why we're having these conversations. Like this is, these are the things that are slowly moving it and moving the needle. And I love that. Um, you know, I mean, in, in, in some industries, like in advertising in the industry, you know, I was in, it was like, it bred that type of behavior. And almost there was a pride around it, you know, about the drinking culture, not almost there is a pride around the drinking culture. Um, but if you, you know happen to cross this line into danger, well, then you, you know, you shouldn't talk about
2: that.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, We
2: see that in a lot of the tech companies in San Francisco, there's a whole culture yeah. where they're drinking at work, so there's an expectation to join in the party if you will but then also not cross the line and so for for those people who do cross the line into addiction they they in some in some cases do have to kind of go into the shadows on how to address it and not really they're not really able to get the support they need at work certainly
0: I was one of those people (laughs) I worked at that's exact that was exactly my story and it was interesting because I also I felt um very like from a really early stage that I that it was also kind of my job to start talking about it it just felt very natural and so I came out about it but it was it was interesting it was just it was a really interesting dynamic to be in a company where I had spent you know I spent probably 75 percent of my my life at that company you know the last one at the at the at the bar on on that side and then when I crossed that line um it was just it was just it was interesting that's all I'll say I went like the uh, you know I'd go to happy hours and I remember one specifically where I mean everyone knew I was sober and there was like literally at one happy hour there was no there was no non-alcoholic beverage and and the girl that was running you know the girl that was running it ran and looked in the back of the fridge and pulled out a half like empty bottle of apple juice and said I've got apple juice you know um (laughs) but it is it's and it's really really tied into that culture and, and, and very, very, you're exactly right. Like it's fine when you're on the one side of it and just don't cross that line, (laughs) which most people, many people do.
2: (laughs) I'm sure. Yes.
0: So what, okay. So then what is, so what, what if, okay, here's a couple other things. What are, um, how does a gay person in recovery recalibrate, recalibrate their place in the larger LGBT tribe? This is another question from, from my friend. Um, how does one, how, how do you do that? How do you coach people on recalibrating theirsel- themselves within their lives um, within the LGBT community?
2: Well, I think you know this is universal for people getting into recovery. At first, it might be challenging to be around people who are drinking. It might be challenging to be around people who are drinking addictively. It might even be more challenging for people who that are around people that drink normally or appear to drink normally. So in the beginning, it might be a little difficult. And for some, in, in some cases, people have to retreat for a while. And I think the question is more when I am ready to, to integrate or reintegrate into a community. I find that, you know, as we've already talked about, finding individual support, finding groups of people that have that common interest or that common experience, I should say, of being sober and what it's like to be in the community. I mean, I know for myself... I thought everyone was drinking and using the way I was. And then when I got clean and sober, I woke up and looked around and thought, wow, most people actually aren't doing that. And so, like, <laughs> don't you right?
0: Same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, with the recovery, I think that that natural, that integration process is pretty natural. And then, you know, I mean, I know for myself, I remember in early recovery, all my friends were in recovery and then that began to shift, you know, where it was, um, now my, you know, I have some friends in recovery and most of my friends are not, and we have more in common than we have different. Uh, so I think it's just a, a natural process that happens over time. The more we focus on our own recovery.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Very well said. So can we um, do you have any more questions, Laura, before we skip to the no, Faith, faith stuff? Okay. So in terms of faith, so you're a minister. Right? I am. Okay. Yes. Um, and then you're also a spiritual counselor. Like, I'm really curious of how you, how that works, what that means, and how you help people find their spirituality or how you help them, how you counsel people with a, like, spiritual angle. And I'm specifically curious about this in terms of um, of people who don't have faith or don't believe in God or, or are atheists or whatever, people that are, are resistance to this part of it. Like, do you think spirituality is absolutely necessary in recovery? And then also, what about people that that, um, don't necessarily identify with this idea of higher power or, or God or.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I think you're opening up such a beautiful conversation here. First, I will, I will say, you know, when I, uh, the more I walk through my own spiritual journey, the more I open up the more, I guess, I, you could say I awaken, or the more further along in my spiritual path I am, the more I find I have in common with all people. Um, one of the things that's interesting is my idea of a God personally has gone from some God up in the sky somewhere that's orchestrating life to something that's not that at all. So I actually, you know, like Awaken Living is our spiritual community, and we are for people who are spiritual but not religious, Um, so the spiritual aspect, I'm going to speak to it in this way. The spiritual aspect to me is very, very important. However, what I think happens is people interpret the word spiritual through their own lens, right? So I'm actually not talking about the need to find a God for some people. That's going to be their path for others. It's not spirituality to me is something actually really different. And when I meet with clients, uh, that are looking for spirituality in their recovery, the first question I ask is, what's the difference between religion and spirituality? Because a lot of people have that sort of confused or intertwined in some way. You know, some of the the most spiritual people I know are religious. Some of the most spiritual people I know are not religious at all. They may not even believe in God God at all. So spirituality to me is much more about an inner journey, a a journey of awakening to our true nature. You know, this, this idea that we come into the world whole and perfect present in awe and curious about life. And at some place we begin to lose that. And, and, And so that to me is the spiritual awakening is about rediscovering that. It's about that great remembering of our essential self. So to me, it's really fundamental and that will include for some people an idea of a higher power and for others, not at all. So I think the most important thing is for people to recognize what they mean, you know, what what is spirituality to the individual, to me, what does it mean, and then how would that assist in my recovery? I think one of the things that I work with quite often is people will go to certain different types of recovery groups, and it feels very religious, and I think that's, that's quite often the case. So, uh, there's an idea that you can choose your own concept of a higher power in some circles, and yet they're talking about it in a particular way. So I think it's important that people discover for themselves what spirituality means and then how they can really develop their own program of creating spaces and communities and connections of people that are on a similar path so that they can really follow their heart in this because it's very, very important not to adapt somebody else's idea of what is quote unquote supposed to happen or what the right answer is about this. It's individual for each of us.
0: So how do you reconcile that with like a 12 step approach? Um, and, and do you, I, I'm curious, just, I don't know that this is foundations. Are they a 12 step based recovery center or no?
2: No, we're not. We're open to a lot. We're holistic integrated treatment. I would say, you know, about half of our clients, maybe even a little less than half, end up using 12 steps as at least part of their recovery. But there's at least half of our clients that um, refuge recovery is really big now. A lot of our clients are doing that. People are creating their own uh, program uh, that may include some 12 step and may not. So it we're definitely not focused on that solely um it's it's a path that works for many many people as we know it's helped millions of people and it's not for everyone
0: yeah and and refuge recovery is noah levine's um the he's founder of dharma punks and 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 it's is refuge recovery for it's in um it's in a lot of cities now isn't it
2: it's spreading really quickly. In yeah. San Francisco, there's, there's several meetings now in the Bay Area each week, so people oh, are really wonderful. excited about that. Yeah, that's wonderful.
0: Yeah, but I need to check it out. It's still 12-step based. Am I right? Like, it still has 12 steps in it, or it reconciles to the 12
2: steps. A- no, it, actually, it does not. He, okay. It's a Buddhist approach to recovery, so it's really very different. What Noah will share, and I can say this because I've heard him interviewed multiple times, that he actually still is involved with 12-step programs and he's found this other path as well. So he's very clear to say that it's not an alternative to 12-step programs. Some people do both, but it's really not 12-step based. It's it's definitely a Buddhist approach. It's 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 its own framework.
0: Wow. And would you describe your spirituality like closer to Buddhism or what would you what would you how would you describe kind of what your what your um what your faith is?
2: If I had to put it into a category, I would say probably Buddhist would be the closest, that mm-hmm. this is about an inner journey of alignment, alignment with the source that we are. You know, I, I have been involved in new thought through unity and centers for spiritual living for many years. I love Agape International Spiritual Center in L.A. <clears throat> so my my I, I lean more toward that, more toward Eckhart Tolle and Pema Chodron. Those are my two favorite writers. Mm-hmm. So it's really more of a new thought, a new consciousness, if you will, Uh I, I don't even know if I'd use the word faith, but a kind of a perspective or a spiritual perspective.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I love it. <sighs> I, I, I don't have, I don't, I mean, this have been oddly, uh, si- you've been oddly quiet. Um, I'm listening. I know. <laughs> Okay, so the last question that I have then is for anybody that's listening. What would you say to them? And then maybe they're maybe those that are not listening in an area that has a lot of resources. Maybe it's not a big urban area, but they're they're struggling LGBT, struggling with um, with addiction and looking for looking for some way to start in some community. And maybe AA doesn't work for them. Where do you tell Where do you tell someone like that to go? Someone that doesn't have the resources that we have in big cities. Um, maybe, well, I think they're. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Go ahead. There are a lot of online resources now. Uh, Certainly look up Refuge Recovery. You can call Foundations Recovery Network. We have programs nationwide and there there's just all sorts of things that are really popping up all over the country now for people to have alternatives. I know there's a lot of online resources for people that don't live in major metropolitan areas. And what I would encourage is what would it be like to, to create your own? You know, we've got meetup now where you can like put, put it out there and create your own group of people where you can connect in a really a really positive way. And uh, this is I think we live in a time now where the paradigm is shifting and we can create our own what works for us and create community around that. Awesome.
0: Anything else, Laura?
2: <laughs> I, I would love to talk about Orlando.
0: Oh, I, didn't, I don't even know. I want to so bad. I don't know what question to ask. Like the best question I can come with is what do you see? What do you see this? What is, What is this going to change? But I would love for you to lead that discussion because I don't know what the fuck to ask, to be honest.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you this. Orlando was deeply devastating for me and for a lot of people that I know, all over the world. In particular, LGBT folks. I think that um, you know there there are many many layers to this conversation. You know, we can talk about gun control. We can talk about all the political aspects of it. At the the essence of it or at the core of it is my invitation for people is to feel the feelings deeply i think one of the things that happens in an event like this is we either, you know, go numb or use these different strategies, you know, whether we call them addictions to not feel. And part of what is important for me and what I've been working with with myself and with my clients and and really friends in my life and my partner, we've been honoring and acknowledging the feelings whatever they are and allowing those to move through us so that we can respond from a place that's different than reacting out of rage or anger or even the sadness, right? So we feel the feelings I think this is a wake-up call for all of us. I think it's an invitation for oneness, an invitation for unity. Um, yeah. It can also manifest in a different way. I think for those of us who are conscious beings, it's time for us to really allow this to be a wake-up call. Um, the LGBT community, I think, feels particularly devastated by this because it does feel like an, a, a personal attack on our community. Whether it's yeah. based in religion or not, it's the act of a person that had some sort of belief that there was something fundamentally wrong with being gay. It 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 strikes very deeply at most of us. And, and I've read a lot of things and watched a lot of interviews. And what I'll say to you know, all of our all the straight allies in the world is let's not be afraid to talk about it because that's what I notice. I notice sometimes, as a white man, when the issue of race comes up, I'm not sure what to say, and so sometimes I just don't say it.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I've had yeah. to learn
2: to like let me have the courage to talk about it. And you know, people of mm-hmm. color they they always appreciate. Oh gosh, thank you for talking about this. So that's what I'll say. I'll say let's just have the conversation. Let's talk about it. Let's let's bring it to the surface. Let's not bury this and, and let it be a two-week news cycle that we move on to something else. This is really, really a crucial turning point for all of us as human beings, not just LGBT folks. And, and this is opening up a larger conversation of what is wanted and needed right now in our country to respond as love and to allow this to be a transformative experience rather than continuing to concretize the ideas of separation, fear, and hate.
0: So yeah. you brought up such a really big point for me, which is, I mean, this conversation, like, I'm not going to lie. I don't, I, I'm like being very careful to not see the wrong thing because it's not my place because I'm straight. Me too. And <laughs> like, I can feel it in Laura and I can feel it in myself. Like, how do I ask this in the right way to not sound like a fucking idiot or to, to feel like I have some own, my own prejudices or that I'm, you know, it just feels like it's not mine to talk about. And it's the same exact thing. Recently, somebody commented on one of my, I posted something up that said, it was an Ariana Huffington um, quote that said I um I act as if I, I approach my day as if the world is rigged in my favor or something to that degree and some girl says yeah this is a white thing to say like it is such a white girl thing to say to assume that the world is rigged in your favor because we live in a world that when you are black or brown your the world especially in America is not rigged in your favor it's a completely different world and I found myself like in that place or it's it's an issue that is close to my heart because addiction is so closely tied into the criminal justice system is so closely tied into race but it's not my thing to talk about because I'm a white girl and so how do we like how do we get past that like I have a voice I have something I want to say I have important views I'm terrified of offending somebody or saying the dumb thing or you know how do we get over that I think it's
2: each of us have yeah each of us has the courage to talk about it there's always going to be a group of people within a group within a subgroup of people that feel stigmatized that are going to kind of have a victim stance on it I'm watching people in the LGBT community say ridiculous things to straight people and it's like you know I don't want to be that person that comments to the comments to the comments on Facebook but I'm sending lots of prayer lots of um, consciousness and energy toward healing. You know, I think one of the things that happens, like I can speak to the gay community, like I, I can say this now, right? Because I'm a gay man, which is really interesting because we all have the right to, to speak to this. And 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 I really feel what you're saying because that is exactly what happens when these types of things come up is there? there's a small but vocal group, that's a minority that will say, you don't have the right to say that because you don't understand our life experience. On one level, that may be true. I acknowledge that. I don't know what it is like to be a person of color in this country. That doesn't mean I can't speak to it. That doesn't mean we can't be in conversation. That's the way we heal. That's the way we connect. I remember I was interviewing someone once, and I made the comment, we're all more alike than different, and she was absolutely just horrified that I would say that. She said, well, yes, you can say that because you're a white man. You don't understand what I've been through. And it, mm-hmm. Although, of course I don't understand what she has been through. I also recognize that we are more alike than we are different. We are all one at the level of source and it's time for us to speak to that and to have the courage to have these conversations and I will speak personally. I don't think there's a wrong way to ask it. I don't think there's a wrong question. The most important thing is that we talk about it. That's how healing takes place. That's what. Happens happens with race relations absolutely what happens now in the lgbt community i'm encouraging all my lgbt friends i'm gonna put it this way get over it everyone <laughs> let's let's have the conversation <laughs> yeah
1: yeah so what what because i i mean i i echo everything holly said i mean that's i this is the most quiet interview that i've had yet um and it's a lot because of that i just what what but I do, I do also feel a simultaneous importance to not be quiet anymore about this, among many other things. So what 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 can people do? Like, what could we do today? If someone, you know, all the people that are going to listen to this are sitting there and, you know, feeling similarly, what can we do in their community and, you know, if people come to you and, and ask that question, what do you say?
2: Well, I'll say this. I think the important thing is if I think I'm trying to change somebody, I might want to reframe it, right? So I, it's not for me about arguing with anybody about their point of view. Mm-hmm. I would encourage people, those gay people that you know that you're close with, have those conversations. Mm-hmm. They'll be open to it. And that way the conversation begins to spread wider and wider, more open. Uh, I know that in all my years of going to gay pride parades, when I see P flag, which is parents and friends of lesbian and gays, It always brings a tear to my eyes because Mm -hmm. people are committed to being a part of our community and opening it up and and that kind of support is so valuable. There's always going to be some group of people that sees the other as the enemy. This is it's time for all of us to wake up. This is part of the global awakening that's happening, is this recognition that we're all more alike. So I say keep having the courage. If someone, if if you can tell someone's not open to the conversation, go talk to someone else. You know, it's like, let's just continue have this conversation we're all waking up in a really beautiful way I think you know gay people that I talk to there's this simu- simultaneously we want to be accepted but we also want to keep our uniqueness and like that's part of evolution you know we we've yeah. asked to be yeah. accepted by mainstream society and then when we are we're like well how dare you try to take over our culture so it's part <laughs> of the process of of growing more and more in oneness
1: yeah it's a lot like, you know, it's, sorry, I'll, uh, it's a lot like the fears I had of in some ways of getting sober, you know, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to tell the truth about my, my own self. It's uncomfortable to recognize the ways in which I am, you know, just like everybody else in some ways and, you know, not like everybody else, but to, to, um, you know, it's, this is all sort of pushing up against me as being willing to be slightly uncomfortable sometimes. Um, yeah. 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 What are uh, you going to say, Al?
0: I was just going to say, so where do you see this going? What are the, what, where did, where do we go from here? Like what, what are, there's so much has been done, right? There's been so much that has so much progress that we've, has been made. And, and yet, you know, here we are like, what, what are the next steps? What comes of
2: this? I think the bottom line for me is simply this, and that is we can either be against or we can be for. And there is never a time that Martin Luther King's, Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote is more pertinent, and that is, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Mm-hmm. For those of us who are choosing to be conscious now, This is about being love in the world. This is about taking time in meditation. This is about doing any work of inner clearing so that we can recognize if I have any judgments, if I have any ideas of separation, if I'm judging a religion or a group of people based on their gender or their sexual orientation or their skin color or their hair color, this is about internal clearing. This is what's wanted and needed. This isn't about fighting externally. Once we're clear with that, we can be love in the world, and that is infectious. That's how consciousness change changes. It's this conversation the three of us are having right now where we recognize that, yes, we do recognize that we have different life experiences, and ultimately, we're all the same. And mm-hmm. so let's open these dialogues. Let's continue to do our own inner work and connect with one another, love one another, this is the time to call five people that you love and tell them that. You know, this is the time that because love does win, love will triumph. I absolutely know that. It's when we cave into the fear and the ideas of separation that we continue to have addictions of all types and all yeah. kinds of distortions like that happened to this person that that chose to go in and kill 49 people. That would those were his inner demons. There's no doubt about that for me. He was clearly tortured in some way. And I'm not saying that it's so simple as like, if we would have just had to sit down and had a conversation with him, he wouldn't do it over time. Consciousness changes over time. People get the message that love is what connects us, that we're more like than we are different. We don't have to fear one another. We can be open and loving and connecting.
1: Yeah. And it feels like this is a time when silence is really loud. You know, like there's, I don't know. I, I have, I can feel these things in my heart, but it's, it's a much different step to, um, to talk and to actually, you know, I asked, you know, what can we do? But I love that you said, you know, do your inner work, do your inner work and, and then bring it out. And sometimes it can be as simple as like changing the way that you, you know, looking people in the eye when you're, when you're out there in the world, um, For me, I mean, I'm, you know, it's not, I think a lot of us feel helpless, um, to, to do something. Um, but we can, especially on this path, this thing that we're trying to do, um, you know, most of the people, if not all of the people listening to this podcast are in the process of trying to get sober or sober, you know, that's the kind of, thing that's the kind of inner work and it's not to be good like we say this all the time it's not to be good you're not getting sober to be good you're getting sober to be free and to be whole again um which raises a consciousness you know collectively of of what we're doing in our in our lives
2: so beautifully said thank you
0: yeah the work we do on ourselves is the work we do on the world yes yeah. without
2: doubt
1: Well, this was wonderful I'm in um,
0: tears (laughs) (laughs) oh you made Holly cry which is not a hard thing to do no this is just it's an important conversation and I think I you know for me the last part of this conversation um it's it's just one of those things that I feel so deeply passionate about and yet so um paralyzed at the same time right um Mm -hmm. it's 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 a it's a great conversation and I'm really glad that we had it and I'm really glad that you said that you know The things that you said, and um, yeah, me too.
2: Yeah, we can. If if we sit with this for a moment, we can feel with the three of us the healing that's happening. Yeah. You know, the tears, the, the joy, the, the, the recognition that, like, I want to say something, but I'm afraid if I say something wrong, you know, and yeah. I'm going to tie it back to that silence equals death. It's time for us to all speak up. It's time for us to be in conversation and to do whatever we need to do internally so that those conversations are about love, not about division. Yes, and that's and that's the most important thing that we're doing right now. So you know, thank you both for having this conversation and this beautiful podcast for all of us.
0: Thank you, thank you. It's been an honor. We'll say,
1: (laughs) yeah, it has. We'll say goodbye for now, and hopefully, we'll we'll loop back together with you
2: again.
0: I'm meeting him in person in a week. Yeah, a week. Oh, I'm going to be in San Francisco
2: so grateful for that yeah
0: maybe you have to you have to take a picture
1: and send it to me i
0: will we will <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> all right guys bye bye oh, that was so good thank you tj oh yeah. my gosh i didn't i wanted to bring up orlando and i was like i don't know how the fa- like i was literally like what <laughs> you <laughs>